0: What is slaughtering, actually, is the proofreader. That is the killer. My God. You know, you get the draft fact from the proofreader. Christ. Brutal.
1: That is Andy Summers, best known for his guitar work in the superstar trio The Police. Also a photographer and an author. In 2021, Summers released his first book of short stories titled Fretted and Moaning. And I spoke to him about the parallels between writing, photography, and music, fame, politics. His impressions of the USA as both a first-time visitor and a long-time resident, and more. Of course, I was hoping he would dish on his former bandmates, and he did not disappoint. I'm Sabi Reyes-Kulkarni, the apostate music journalist, and this is Feedback Death. <music> So just to set this up, there's a brief note from Andy Summers on the back cover of Fretted and Moaning that reads as follows. Most of these tales are drawn from real life or are things I've heard about in the dark corners of various backstage dressing rooms. It's hard to be a musician, but for some of us, there's simply no choice. Meanwhile, there's writing about it. Andy Summers. And for just a bit more context, here's a brief note from writer-producer Bradley Bambarger that's printed on the inside flap. These short stories have a comic piquancy born of backstage tall tales and the troubadour's eye for the offbeat. They feel like a swirl of the Cone Brothers and Nick Hornby, English drollery and louche rock and roll, full of oversexed rock journeymen, feuding country stars, mixed up punk wannabes, and sweet-hearted music lovers who can't catch a break. The guitar, an extension of the author's heart and mind since he was a kid in Bournemouth, is the recurring character binding one story to the next, and resonating with promise and delusion like a siren song. So there you go. One clarification, you're going to hear me make references right off the bat to a film titled Can't Stand Losing You, which is Andy Summers' documentary about the police, and to his book One Train Later, which is his autobiography. Thanks for listening, and without further ado, I give you my conversation with Andy Summers. I most likely have more questions than I was allotted time for, so We'll just keep it on. Okay. All right. Uh, I have not seen Can't Stand Losing You, but I have read One Train Later, and I've gotten a fair way through your new book. So can you pinpoint where in your life your development as someone who writes prose starts? I know prior to One Train Later, you wrote these sort of companion bodies of text in the book Light Strings. Yeah. But when you sat down to write One Train Later, how much had you even attempted to write at that point? Well... I Yeah,
0: I mean, I was probably so obsessed with music and guitar playing that, you know, I mean, I've always been a completely, yeah, fairly literary person and, you know, complete avid, you know, non-stop book reader, blah, blah, blah. So I've built up some sort of mm, profile that way. And, you know, I've had to write, write quite a lot of things over the years, you know, in magazines, different things so it was sort of there but I, I think I got to the point where you know finally looking back I thought yeah I've probably got a pretty interesting story if I could turn it into a book not that I'd sat down and really written a book like that before um I think the inclination was absolutely there to do it that I I, I didn't think oh there's no way I could ever write a book I, you know I'm a pretty confident person so I thought yeah I could do it but um it was sort of like that, you know. I mean, when was this? I mean, was it was around, must have been about 2005, because I think the book came out, or maybe slightly earlier, because right. the book came out in 2006. Right. Yes, that's right. So I, was, I worked, you know, the way I did it was um, uh, I'd written, I suppose I wrote originally about 800 pages. I mean, it was fantastic. You know, I wrote all this stuff, and, you know, I did sort of, then, of course, it's all in the rewrite and the editing. And uh, I sort of saw the book in two halves, which, so there's the first part pre-police and the second part of the police. To do the police, I came up with a, some methodology. I I had to go through sort of the, you know, relearn the history of the police myself and see what record came out when, when we did this tour, blah, 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 all of which is available even then was on the internet. I got all that together and created this this sort of scaffolding of, you know, paper on the wall so that when I got the events in the right order, you know, the scaffolding was correct, I could start to write in uh, like a writer emotionally, if you like, and all the events and all that and make it interesting. So, you know, I think that's where I sort of really got my feet wet. And, you know, I showed it to a couple of people, a woman poet, for instance, you know, and kind of got involved with it all. And uh, these stories in this book, I actually wrote some of them quite a long time ago, quite a few years ago. And I had some of them, like the one, the Cleveland one I wrote years ago. And I sort of felt it there, like, hmm, should probably do more of these. I, I actually showed them to a few people. People were very encouraging. You should write, oh, these are great. Why don't you put them in a book? But I didn't feel I had enough. Then I did some, uh, you know, on stage performances where I actually read a couple of these to the audience, and it went really well. So, you know and I guess you know, prior to the getting involved with a publisher, I, I must go back a couple of years. I, you know, got down to it, as it were. I had a lot of ideas, so it was just a question of really getting into the full writing mode and taking it seriously and, you know, working my way through everything that you see in that book.
1: (laughs) Well, so there's, there's one, there's one major contrast in that these are super concise, these vignettes, these stories. Well, they
0: vary from, you know, and, uh, you know, of course I'm uh, influenced and I'm taking notice of the modern world of writing, Uh, short story books, great short story writers, people that I like, you know, I'm a very well-read person from, you know, you know the russians to modern american short story uh, writers so you know some can be a page and that's it some are up to 10 12 15 pages all sorts of things uh, but yeah primarily short stories rather than a novel but i like short stories you know or novellas but
1: yeah. there's one key there's one common thread in that one train later is essentially a stack of stories um, well,
0: I hope it's a bit more than that, because that makes it sound kind of dumb, and I don't think it is. I think it's really well written.
1: Well, um, it's it's that collect into a whole, you know, it's like sort of uh, movements within a suite of stories, if you will. I mean, they obviously gel into... Yeah, but it makes own. it sound
0: like anecdotes, and I think my book is superior to most <laughs> them. Excuse okay. me for answer. No, I've seen plenty of, you know, so-called rock star books. Most of them are crap, and they're just anecdotes. And, uh, you know, I wanted mine to be much more legit than that because there's a lot of other things in the book. It's not just anecdotes. So we did, the, you know, there's funny stories, but there's loss, divorce, pregnancies, you know, bitterness, you know, it's all in there.
1: Sure, there's a lot of cont- anyway. emotional contour, but I'll offer you this. So so what I was reading, obviously there's a huge distinction between the two books, but when I was reading Fretted and Moaning, mm. Mm. there were two scenes from One Train Later that I felt really? in an alternate sort of twist c- could have found their way in a different form with this kind of presentation. And the, the first one is where you're uh, at some outdoor cafe in Germany and it's really clear to you that there's a gentleman sitting nearby that's ex Nazi, which that wasn't told for laughs, but I mean, it kind well, of. That
0: was something I actually experienced. Right, yeah,
1: of course. <laughs> Yeah. and then there was the the scene where you where the police are in a prop plane and you almost fall out of the yeah that's true the well, prop plane. True. Yes. yes i'm just saying that there there is there is some common thread in the way you present like there's a the the, the storytelling tone yeah. is is there is a shared element there between the two books not to not to reduce the memoir to a series of yeah. vignettes yeah all right well i mean
0: yeah let me respond to that I mean obviously I mean the central idea if you like little hook is that there is a guitar in every story and you know coming from where I'm coming from I thought people would you know here I'm putting out you know 45 short stories in a book Uh, they're going to accept it if I'm writing about something like the guitar rather than trying for some high-flown you know political novel or something and this is all stuff that yeah, pretty much, I part. it's not because there's a lot of imagination here. You know, uh,
1: uh,
0: I have found enough things in my life to be able to, you know, use as the uh, seed of a story, if you like. You know, or, or I've heard people say, you know, anecdotes or tales, you know, as you, if you're someone like me who tours and plays in the public, that, you know, I remember them or I make notes and, you know, eventually they ended up in this book. So this is not like this is written by somebody who has actually passed through most of this stuff. And that's been my life. So anyway.
1: Right. And there there is a, a playful quality almost like uh you know, you introduced the book saying that um you know they have roots in truth and things that you've you've heard around mm. over mm. the years. Um, but there's also a playful sense where, you know, one can sort of toy with the idea, well, is this an urban legend or is this a folktale? Yeah.
0: Well, I'm looking at the list here because I have to have it out if I'm doing interviews, otherwise (laughs) I won't remember anything. You know, I go, oh, yeah, that's right. No, look, I'm just looking at the list. And, um, okay, there's one called Number 24, it says here, Sagebrush. (laughs) It's the one about the cowboys. I don't know if you've got that far yet. Not yet. No? Oh, okay. Well, okay, there's one about two guys coming back from some – you know, like herding cattle across the West and, you know, their adventures on the way back. But, you know, this is not my experience, but what I managed to get into that story is, you know, the two cowboys sitting under the rocks at night, the guy pulls out his uh, Martin guitar, which at the time that they were herding cattle, uh, Martin guitars were actually in America, you know, with that sort of Fender headstock that they originally had. Which of course is copied from European guitar, so there's that little element in that. But of course, that's completely made up. Um, I'll just look and see what I, you know, other things.
1: Well, there was one that I wanted to ask you. Yeah. What, uh, okay. The story about Floyd, <laughs> who retires oh, yeah. f- <laughs> from music, uh, yeah. which I, I don't want to spoil it. But uh, that made me wonder how much you felt wistful once that part of your life slowed down. Uh, on that scale, you
0: know, from eighty-four. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I get, yeah. No, I think that's a very good comment. Yeah. Of course, I feel wistful. I mean, you, you know, how long can anybody keep doing it? But I mean, from that, you know, high-flying excitement, you know, which is a killer in a way. Uh, uh, then you sort of let go of it. I, I mean, honestly, I'm still playing and. You know, I mean, I'm still doing it. So Floyd's position here as he is a sort of ex-country star or whatever. But, uh, yeah, it's based on something like that, yeah. You know, I mean, it's not so far from my life that I couldn't sort of take it and then sort of slightly reinvent it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So from a a writing perspective, first of all, how much much is writing a regular part of your life now? And um, how much did you have to work at it. You change. Well, no, I think it's all work,
0: yeah. You know, I've been writing books all my life. I mean, my skills, training, and creative efforts have all been with really with music, well, and photography in my case, but, you know, I've always been completely addicted to writing as well. But um, as I sort of got into it, I did, you know, put quite a lot of thought. Well, I mean, I, I want to say that, I mean, I did get quite a lot of um, help from a woman poet that I know here in Los Angeles. Um but you know it 's natural you know i, I did, um I think most of the the good you know the better the writing gets better and better as you rewrite, so I learned to rewrite you know and i 'm looking at short stories, picking up ideas, thinking about things i mean it 's just like music you 've got to get your ideas from somewhere i mean there's so many ways you can tell a story from what perspective, which voice it's in, you know what kind of attitude do you want it to have i mean it's you know i 'm completely into. Uh, narrative and storytelling so i think about it a lot and then there's also of course practical construction of sentences you know verbs nouns blah 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 writing well so i you know studied it quite a lot and you know took quite a lot of time with these stories to yeah make sure they all read read well on the page that they're um you know articulate i suppose is the right word you know, and there are little devices in there, like I've got a character called Sullivan that you may have done. Well, you're not. You're only about halfway through it. Right. He's a sort of, you know, made-up rock star guitar player, if you like, and so he occurs through these stories about, um, there's about four stories that involve him, which I thought was, I was quite pleased to do that. I thought it was kind of a nifty device, you know, in quite literary in a, in a sense to do that. You know that you go on and you think, oh, well, I could, have met, I could write a whole book about him and his adventures, actually. So, uh, you know, I think you just – I think when I was doing this, really in it, I, you know, when I thought like a decision, okay, I'm going to write this book, I'm going to do it, because I'd had enough encouragement and I had probably like – eight or nine stories. I thought, no, I've got to go on. And and then I started to really spend time on it and really that's where I put my mind on the writing, rather than, you know, obsessing about musical time. I got into writing this book and and then rewriting it and you know, coming up with more ideas. I had a sort of a list of about fifty ideas or notes to uh try this, you know, like um you know, and it would be you know like Elvis impersonator or something, and I would and I would try and get going on it into some sort of story.
1: And your style, at least in the final product, what it, what appears on the page, and also on one train later, um, yeah. I, th- I think one of the things that stands out is the economy. Yeah. And you know, much as musicians have to learn not to keep adding stuff and yeah. to trim down, I wonder how long it took you to get to that kind of flow.
0: Well, you're right because I mean, if you want to parallel it with music, I've always been an improvising guitarist. I grew up as a kid from like 11 on, you know what, you know, completely fascinated with jazz and how to play jazz solos, and it's all about phrasing and articulation and, you know, the concise, pointed phrase, very much like writing in that sense. So if you like, I suppose, I mean, this is conceit, but I could say, you know, I was trained all my life to be a writer by, you know, improvising music. Um, turning things around, back to front. How many way, how many lines can you play over one chord? How many ways can you you know turn it around, upside down, whatever? What rhythm do you want to play? You want to play triplets, quarter notes, sixteenths? Flip it back to front, and all of that comes into. I mean, when you read a lot, you see how people take it all the way out. And if you really want to go that far, I think these stories, the thing to me was like, how am I going to make this appeal to the general public? Okay, that's all. They've all got guitars in them somehow, but the guitar's not really the point of the story. It's just the focal point for relationships to happen and, you know, happy, sad, tragic events. Um, my idea about all these is that they're comedic, that they're dark comedy. A lot of these end with a sort of a twisted ending. In fact, almost all of them have got a sort of slice of lemon thrown in the <laughs> right. end. like, yeah, yeah. So that was it's very general thinking, but it's it's a train of thought and, you know, then you've got to make it real. Like some, some took longer than others, you know, to get everything in the right order so that, you know, I, I have a friend who's a great writer for Los Angeles Times and he read through them and, he, you know, he caught a couple of things where, that weren't quite coherent. You know, I'd come to like sentence 15, but I needed to work on sentence or paragraph eight and nine, to make that really clear. So, you know, this is the writing process. And, um, yeah, you, you, you spend time with it, you live with it. You know, you, they're not knockoffs at all. They're worked and reworked until uh, they make sense on their own. I mean, I like to think each story stands on its own, and particularly because um, I'll eventually end up probably performing them on stage somehow, or rather. I've, I read a couple of them on Instagram already.
1: Right, you, know. you can... Reading it, you can definitely get a sense of what was sort of like a sculpture. Is also the space around it of what was not yeah. put in there. There's, there's that. It's very clear that there's there was effort put into the the construction of yeah. the story.
0: It is a and you you know then you you know I mean it's a typical way of doing it. you know you write you write you go uh, okay I'll, I'll let me look at it again in a couple of days I come back and then go okay this has got to go this could be at the top there you know. Not exactly cutting and pasting, but it is very similar to I've got the elements, but they're not in the right order. So, you know, this is it's just like it is construction, constructing or architecture. You kind of build the piece until it, it's it got that kind of flow and read it aloud and go, oh, yeah, I think we're getting there now. You know, uh, it, it's just like any creative process. You come back at it. You know, if I'm making a track in the studio with, you know, several tracks in it, you uh, you know, you get it to a point, and they don't always work. You know, the last album, I well, the next one coming out, I had like four or five other tracks left over that didn't make the cut, if you like, in the end, because I thought they weren't clear enough or they didn't, I don't know, something about the music. But, uh, I, I'm used to this process of, you know, constructing and then self-editing to get them to the point where, I like it, you know, and I'm, I can live with it because I, I think, I mean, you know, even making tracks and being a musician, you know, being a recording musician, uh, I think the first person or the audience you're really playing to is yourself and you know when it feels good. I mean, someone else might come and think differently, but, I mean, for me, it's always like, okay, I'm really digging it now. Okay, I think we're there. This can go out the door. So I don't think this... Uh, has got writing is a lot different. In fact, you know, once I did start turning them over to like agent type people, I got a lot of cheering on and uh, you know congratulations, and that made me go on and write even more. Actually,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you what your relationship with editors has been like, and and how that compares to working with producers in music.
0: Yeah, there is some sort of parallel. Um, when I wrote One Train Later um you know I you know I was thrilled that I'd actually written a book and was able to hand it over to it was St Martin's press actually and there was a young editor there and uh this is my first sort of outing into the real world with it and um you know he had some comments but they weren't damning they you know it was more like what do you mean by this or do you think you need that sentence right there it was pretty mild stuff and um you know so I felt pretty good about what I had done and that I hadn't been like slaughtered by an editor. What is slaughtering actually is the proofreader. That is the killer. My God, <laughs> they come back at you. I wrote a really long piece for a photography book. I put out two years ago in France and it came out with the university of Texas press. I wrote a really great piece. I thought I was so pleased with it. And the proofreader. A certain back. strangeness. Um, is it in that book? Yeah. Yeah, it's called Certain Strangeness. I don't know if you've seen that essay. I don't know if it's ever been out outside of the book. But it's um, my story. This was done for a museum, and they did the book with the French company and the University of Texas. Uh, yeah, my story, sort of the involvement of being in a rock band and and getting obsessed with photography, and how it all played out for me, you know, nicely. But um, I was really pleased with that essay. It took quite an effort to write that one and then you know you get <laughs> you know you get the draft fact from the proofreader. christ brutal <laughs> chicago manual of chicago size that was called yeah i and i've learned over the years because I, I did go through that with one train later and you know to some extent not quite as bad with fretted and moaning I gave it to one editor here in L.A., a guy that I know who's a great writer, and then, you know, the guy who's publishing it also proofread it again, but that wasn't so bad. You know, I think um, I learned a bit along the way. You know, you'll think you're writing really perfect prose, and then the proofreader picks up on all these things according to the laws of the Chicago manuals. <laughs> it's very crushing, you yeah. know. They take things out. But, you know, in a way it's good because what it does usually, unless uh, it usually tightens it up, but where it can fall apart, and I did sort of slightly fall apart with a certain strangeness one was this person, this proofreader is like a straight, just doesn't get the vernacular uh, writing. You know, right. no, that's exactly how I meant it to be. Don't change it. You know, they, it's like they take all the curly bits out. So now it's just, it's not, it's not as interesting as anymore. So you've got to, you know, but usually when you, as the writer, you get the proof back from the proofreader and you have a proofreading sign to put in that means keep or agreed. So, you know, some some I did and some I didn't, and that's the way it goes. Yeah.
1: Right, right. That's understandable. Uh, I- one has feelings, what can I say? <laughs> right, right. And yeah. and with editors who don't understand that language doesn't adhere yeah, they to don't. Yeah. this sort of dogmatic approach to, to grammar and syntax that we can starch yeah. your the the soul out of your Yeah. It's like it's like putting yes, it's exactly. like quantizing well put. music is what that is to literature. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I like the word starching, you know. No, I liked it when it was all wrinkly. <laughs> <laughs> and,
1: sta- and stained. You <laughs> don't want it dry cleaned.
0: Yeah, no, yeah, no. It, it's really true. So you have to kind of walk a fine line between what you know and them doing their job according to the manual. But sometimes they're wrong.
1: Right, you, you have know. to proof the proofreader, basically. and That tug of war can be quite invigorating.
0: Yeah. Well, without thinking, just fuck you every three minutes.
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've often fancied that it would be nice to have an editor, like a regular editor that you can fight with. and and uh, yeah. But in any case, um, I read an interview around, I'm almost positive it was 1992, and I'm almost positive it was in Guitar World, uh, uh-huh. where you said you prefer ambiguous chords because you hate when music dictates to the mm-hmm. listener what they're supposed to feel. Right. with major and minor chords. I imagine you've said things to that effect elsewhere as well.
0: Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, it's one of my sort of tropes, if you like. I have said stuff like that. And, uh, you know, just, to, I mean, if you want to talk about music, I mean, harmonically, I think one of the hip things of, about the police music is that we did sort of avoid, you know, just guitar-wise, giant bar chords and simple major and minor moves. I mean... It's a slight generalisation, but I, you know, I mean, I mean, just real specifically, you know, on the guitar, I often would only play the chords with what we call the um, the major ninth or the second above, you know, the tonic. So that I would avoid the the major third or minor third, which would delineate that, you know, major minor kind of harmony. So the way I played it, it parallel fifths, if you like, was a much hipper, more modern way of. Uh, you know, uh, interpreting the, uh, harmony of the, uh, songs.
1: Right. Which gave the songs more flexibility for people to sort of inhabit them with a wide, wider range of feelings. And yeah, you know, that music wasn't, y- you couldn't easily ascribe something as like, Oh, it's aggressive. I mean, it was, but it wasn't only, it was aggressive with other colors in there.
0: Well, this is what I brought to the band, you know, now, you know, this is a complex issue, you know, we'll start talking about the bloody police again. Um, you know, Sting is a great singer who grew up very, uh, with almost exactly the same musical background as me. We both grew up with the Beatles, the Stones, Blues, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, you name it, and Brazilian music. His ears and the way he heard things were very similar to me. So when I started playing more out harmonies and this kind of parallel fifth thing, his, he could sing right across it and over it, so that... You know, this is the magical thing about The Police. It was a complete one-off, unique, not like other bands. So,
1: um, Well, I was going to ask how that applies, how that affinity for something more ambiguous applies to your writing.
0: Well, that's really good. Yeah, actually, that's kind of embarrassing because I don't know that I've actually necessarily done that. I mean, I think the things that I've brought to this, that I've brought a lot of unique experiences being the guitar player that I am and all that, to these stories, but with something of a literary sensibility, if I dare say that, so that these stories come out. I don't think a normal writer who doesn't play the instrument could really write these. Mm. This comes out of a lifetime of being around all this stuff and, you know, inhabiting that planet, you know.
1: What struck me as a book... It struck me as a book that uh, people who love guitar, who don't think they like to read, it would suit them. And people who love to read, who don't think they have any interest in the guitar, would it would suit them as well.
0: Well, God bless you. I really hope that's the case and we can sell a million books. We'll see how it goes, yeah. So far, it seems to be being very well received.
1: So if you were to write about what's happening if you if if you were suddenly to drop an essay or something on you know all the upheaval taking place in the U S particularly uh, being a Brit yeah I, I wonder what that would look and sound like because you were born during World War II and you have this concrete sense of what it looks like just after a society has gone over the brink you know and yeah. I, I've got to say it was through reading One Train Later and your stories from childhood that it finally hit me how severely England was affected in the aftermath of the war up until that point. I'd seen it through the lens of like a twelve-year-old boy watching warplanes and kind of romanticizing yeah. that, but inadvertently no. your book changed that. So I'm curious oh. as no. to what...
0: Well, yeah, no, I, I'm you know I live here and you know I watch American politics all the time and you know because we all my, we've all been moaning about the last four years of Trump. Thank God he's gone and feeling slightly relieved, but not completely relieved, now that Biden's in. But, you know, now we're dealing with Mitch McConnell and his gangsters. Um, but I read, you know, I read the New York Times every day. In fact, I just finished reading it today. Um, I read some of these political commentaries and wonder if I could write as well as that. You know, I mean, I read the New York uh, Atlantic Monthly, New York Times. It's a different kind of writing, and, um, you know... I'm not a heavily political person. I I mean, basically, I hate politics, but I I feel that being an adult living in this country and the importance of America and the world, that I have to be paying attention, you know, and even talking to our own kids about it. So um, my view of it would be pretty dark, you know. I mean, I like reading people like, uh, I don't know if you've ever read Martin Amos, people like that about politics, because he comes out as a brilliant writer and author and, you know, novelist, but as an incredible um, take on politics and um, the state of the world. Uh, He's a major, very major writer. So Mm. I doubt that I would uh, take on something like that. I don't really feel qualified. I mean, I am, you know, writing other stuff right now. I'm writing something. I'm trying to, uh, well, I've got this kind of crazy idea that I'm trying to Combine, make a film out of still photographs that has a narrative and th- this is not a completely new idea it's been done before but not with the technology that we have available now so I'm actually in the middle of writing it's almost turning into a screenplay actually um, that I was intending to visually make it all with my own photography I may be getting too ambitious in the writing that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a huge archive of photography that I've shot, you know, over the years, and um, I don't know if I can get it. To, I have to think, you know, it's, it's you know, a creative knot, I, I'll see, because I don't want to put the, um, you know, the, I don't want to stop the way the narrative's going, but I, it makes me wonder if, Christ, this is a lot to fill up with still photographs. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. But I am actively writing, and I've got notes from all stories as well, so, you know, it continues, if you like.
1: If I'm not mistaken, I think I, because I've watched a bunch of interviews, I think when you were promoting uh, Can't Stand Losing You, you had said something to the effect that you had been inspired by the idea of telling a story with photographs. I could be getting my wires crossed there, but I'm I'm almost certain that what you're saying is echoing something that I think I've heard you say. uh, Yeah. Well, I mean,
0: I probably have said something along those lines. Um, Yeah, it's a little fruity to say, oh, every photograph tells a story. I I don't necessarily think that. Um, I mean, it's a different medium. Photography, I mean, you can sort of cross-reference all these different media, you know, music, photography, writing. And I think it's interesting to see one in terms of the other, you know. Is this photograph musical, for instance? Is it harmonic? Why not? Why not think of it in those terms? But um, I think the kind of things I tend to like, and I hope it's in these stories as well, is a sort of open-ended, you know, that there's an implied narrative, that, you know, there's a, you know, before and after. Well, obviously with photographs, you know, well, not not all photography is like that, but kind of the stuff I like to shoot, which is mostly out in the world. And, and I don't like to call it street photography because I'm not really looking for some crazy action on a street and a city. I'm looking to make a... Compelling photograph by happened to catch a moment. You know, I mean, I mean that's an old one from Cartier-Bresson, of course, the decisive moment. But um, I think those the photographs that really work have that kind of implied narrative that before and after, and you catch a very striking moment. Yeah,
1: right. I mean, from what I understood, the way the the first story ends again, I don't want to spoil it too much, but uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. Where yeah. <laughs> where
0: there's and Lewis th- yeah. There's, yeah
1: there's laughter after this it's a
0: third ending but I sort of like the ending because it's sweet in a way it feels it sort of feels like you know you go to take on the guy and it's just so ridiculous but
1: right right and there's everything after and everything before and it's yeah, it's, it's yeah. like I was saying everything that was carved out of the stone and yeah. w- what's left is the the sculpture itself um this may not sound related but but it is um i'm curious as to i I know you have a history of living in the la area your desert Mm -hmm. years prior to being in the police yeah but why i'm just curious what attracted you to settle back in la i don't know actually i wonder that myself what what was i thinking (laughs) i mean
0: strange i mean i did i was here when i was quite young in my early 20s i went to college but um then went back to england and it all started up and uh you know I spent those fairly youthful years in Los Angeles of course you know the life here the weather all of it you know it's much easier than living in London for instance um post police you know it was all over I went back to live in my house in London and it all felt like well it was a sort of a downer and I just I sort of at that time, I sort of hated London. I thought, oh, God, I can't stand it here. Uh, I was so used to such a different high-flying lifestyle that um, and that seemed to be, I don't know why, it seemed to be represented by Los Angeles. My wife and I met in Los Angeles, so I did have, you know, some background here. And, was, you know, it was sort of a simple, probably wrong reason, but I moved back. I'm probably done with it now. I'm ready to move back to London,
1: <laughs> What about the I fires? Thought,
0: well, I'm worried, you know, I was just reading the New York Times today about, you know, the drought and, you know, we've had fires out here recently, you know, um, see what happens. You know, I, where I live, I look out across a couple of canyons and you go, I hope I'm not going to see the flames coming up on the other side of the canyon one day. <laughs> I don't think so, but Christ, you know, it's, Yeah. I mean, apart from that, you know, L.A. is like the great undiscovered jewel of America. It's a wonderful place to live because of the physicality of it, the nature, the ocean, the availability, the how relaxed it is. It's great in many ways. I have a lot of really good friends here. And, you know, of course, it attracts a lot of artistic people because of the, you know, the movie industry. You know, it's not like hell living here. <laughs> it's... Just, pretty good.
1: Well, I've actually heard from natives there that there's, and and people who've visited or relocated there, that there's actually, it actually, the stereotype is a is a bad rap, um, that there's actually quite a bit of neighborhood vitality, yeah. ethnic enclaves. That oh, doesn't... yeah.
0: No, it's an interesting place. I mean, people sort of go, oh, and they just got this sort of a cliched idea. They haven't really lived here and they don't know mm-hmm. it. It's much more interesting than that. It's a lot of Arts and everything—it's got—and in fact, even since I moved here, it's just gotten better and better all the time. It, it, you know, it's just, everything's increased. I think a lot of people can't stand New York now, and uh, they're all moving out to LA. <laughs> it a lot, and, and I love New York, and I'm sad not to be going there like I used to because I hear it's gotten violent and kind of dangerous. Actually,
1: which was yeah. what it was like when you first—the well, police first landed well, in America, okay. anyway.
0: Well, yeah. You want to talk about New York in the eighties? That was the time. God, it was fantastic.
1: I was there, uh, but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that also gets really romanticized, I think, uh, quite a bit, uh, especially with music and uh, as the, the story of music is threaded through that scene yeah. and punk and no even so on. Um, that actually sparked a question I, I didn't originally have. I'm curious. You said you hate London, or you were hating London. How much culture shock or reverse culture shock do you feel whenever you go back to England?
0: Um, well, you know, I don't think I've been for almost two years, which is unusual for me because I was, you know, obviously the pandemic hit, that knocked it out. Can't even go. Wouldn't allow you in, or I think if you came from the US, it may be different right now, but it was two weeks quarantine. I have to go later this year because I've got a big photography show coming up in London. Um, it is culture shock because, you know, I obviously lived there at seminal points and a couple of great decades, the best decades in London. And uh, I don't think it's really like that anymore. Of course, I could be completely wrong. Uh, but I, I haven't really, I, I'm not, I, you know, I'm interested to go back just to see how I feel about it. You know, I, I mean, if I go later in October, I'll probably stick around for a few weeks and see what would it be like. I still have a house there what would it be like to live here again? I mean, that's not an easy move because you're moving just on a simple level back to freezing cold weather, rain, fucked up economy, fucked up politics, Brexit, you know, it's like a war zone. (laughs) Why do you want to go there?
1: Yeah, Right, a similar polarization all up and down as we're seeing here. How accurate would it be to say that you are more sort of direct and and sharp-tongued and outspoken than your average Brit?
0: Um. Yes, it's possible. I mean, I don't know. I've got pretty strong opinions about things, and I don't mind voicing them if I get the opportunity. <laughs> A lot of, you know, especially musicians, you know, because I come from the musical fraternity, you know, they, they don't want to know. A lot of musicians don't want to talk about anything much. Oh, yeah, all right. You know, they, they don't, not, not my friends in particular, but, um, um, you to be careful like, what you're saying here. <laughs> You say, Robert, you know, English people, um, Maybe they're more... Well, look, I mean, America, the US, is a gigantic country, and um, I just don't think countries should be this big. I think when you've got a country that's as tiny as England um, and everybody's on top of one another, people, I think, do get more opinionated and have strong thoughts about it because they're living in such a tight, closed society. Out here, you know, you, you're dealing with some... Oh, God, the size of America... I can't even barely conceive of it in a way. You know, I'm just reading about Southern Baptists and all that today. Like
1: this. Christ. Well, yeah. how did that hit you on the police's first true cross-country when you when you oh, we first? Oh, we were
0: time very I- excited. You know, because you know we're young musicians, and you know all the music you know to, that we were influenced by comes from America, comes from the U.S. and you know places like. I don't know, Detroit, Nashville, Chicago. These are all, like, legendary names if you've grown up in England. And finally, you're here where it all came from. So it's on a simple level. You know, we played in Memphis. I went down to see the house where Elvis was born. You know, (laughs) Stuff like this was very thrilling in those early days. I don't think it would be quite so thrilling anymore. But to be, you know, driving around, you know, in a van across the U.S. in those days
1: Uh, it's really,
0: yeah, enjoyed it, you know, despite the long hours.
1: Yeah, I've seen Stuart Copeland's film. I have it actually somewhere. Um, It captures that vibe and you're talking about the skylines and recognizing them. Yeah, it was all,
0: well, I mean, complete romanticization on our part, of course, but um, there you go, you know, that's what it was, yeah.
1: That film, by the way, is titled Everyone Stares, and it was out in 2006, the same year that Summers' autobiography One Train Later was published. I once heard Stuart Copeland on a radio show, I think this was in the 80s. No, it was actually in the, in the, in the early 90s, and he described a scene with your instrumental Behind My Camel, where oh, yeah. Sting refused to play on it, and by, by Stuart's account, you said, if this song doesn't make it on the record, I'm going to kill someone. Stewart said he was a little guy, but he was very aggressive. So how, how well, accurate is that assessment?
0: <laughs> um, Stewart tends to fabricate quite a lot. I, that doesn't sound quite right. I do remember the incident, and, um, you know, of course, the song actually won a Grammy, so I got the best of it in the end. And Stuart was, you know, decent enough to play on the track, and I played the bass. And of course, I obviously played the lead guitar line, and it went on the album and won a Grammy. <laughs> so I got the last laugh on that one. Um, well, you know, I don't know if it's aggression, it's about, um, you know, you know, it's a tough scene being in the music scene, trying to make it, you know, being in a band with, you know, adver- you know, they're your friends, but they're also your adversaries. So you have to like, you know, state your position clearly, stand by it. Yeah,
1: yeah I think that uh, I've only heard one other major musician describe the sense of vulnerability one feels always being in a spot where your ideas can be rejected and how wearing yeah. that can be over time.
0: Yes, get used to rejection, you know, and um, certainly it was like that in the police sort of trashing each other's efforts all the time until, you know, we, you end up at some place that everybody goes, More well, that's it, that's good, you know, that'll do it. You know, classic, of course, it would be um, Every Breath You Take, which is a really simple song, um, classic chord sequence. And, you know, it took weeks for Stuart and um, Sting to agree on how it was going to go, you know, the rhythm backing, you know, that where the kick right. drum would be and how you'd play the and, and we reached the, you know, standstill and the point of no return. This is the end of the band, you know. Uh, but we had the bass and drums down, because you know, Sting had come in with uh, a demo of it, which sounded like Yes or something, it, you know, huge rolling synthesizers, nothing like The Police. But we got to that point where we had the drums and bass and then uh, the classic story is, yes, you know, I think we had lunch and things. I like, said, oh, go on, go on in there and make it your own.
1: And you had been very listening to Bartok, correct?
0: Well, I was actually because I was sort of doing some recording with Robert Fripp and I was sort of thinking about stuff we could do and I was pretty familiar with the Bartok violin du- duets and I uh, thought, oh, you could probably play some of those. You know, they're very um, not sort of not traditional Western harmony, very sort of Hungarian. Anyway, I sort of had that stuff in my fingers. It was, um, yeah, I mean, I went in the studio and they played the track out. I, I just sort of had it instantly what to do. And, uh, you know, of course, it became the classic track, you know, with the very highly recognizable guitar figure, and it went straight to number one. So, again, I had the last laugh on that one.
1: So. I'd be remiss since we're talking about the police. I didn't want to dwell on on that, um, but, no, um, really, but but really. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you two questions. Uh, one is, you know, you've been. It's well documented that you thought that uh, the quote I had read decades ago was that you you felt the police had more great albums in them. Oh, no doubt. But in the pieces of the film the snippets that i've seen online mm. you know you cast the reunion in 2007 as this triumphant event i'm curious how much interest you had in actually making a new album at that point especially when it was clear that people came out in droves to see those shows and i would imagine there were some um drooling from the music machine to
0: yes. <laughs> to keep that. Well, yeah, everybody wants to make money. And, I mean, I mean, we basically kept the music business alive in the uh, 80s with the police because we got everybody back in the record stores buying records in the millions, you know. And so we were a great boon to the industries and, and adored for doing that. Um, I don't remember, I would probably, well, I don't want to say the word cynical, but, you know, by the time we got to the reunion tour... Um, I knew that there's no way that we were going to make a new album. There's no way Sting would step up to the plate and and agree to do that. So I didn't really hold much hope for that. Although you know, we did um, you know a live concert DVD came out of it, and you know, but not n- no new songs.
1: Well, I mean, because I was at one of those shows, and it was very clear that all three musicians had grown tremendously. You could hear it in yeah. the the playing of songs that were familiar, but you could tell.
0: I agree. Everyone's Thank you chops
1: that. were. Yeah. And not just chops, it was the growth. Yeah. And so, um, to be frank, that's what I found very frustrating about that show. Because yeah. it's like, well, why, why wouldn't, you know.
0: Well, I can only say ask Sting.
1: So, so it was clear he wouldn't step up to the plate. What made that clear? Well,
0: no, you very, what's the right word? Intransigent you know, self-enclosed person, couldn't get in there. You know, you could, oh, there was some talk about it, actually. Now I say that, I'm thinking about it. Uh, you know, he and I did have some conversations along those lines. I think we talked about, you know, there's such spinal tap cliches, you know, we thought about doing an acoustic album. I mean, God, I can't believe we actually said that. But um, there was some talk. But then, you know, of course, the tour was over and we all sort of, drifted back to wherever we were i mean that was almost a two-year involvement right yeah that was something to you know come down from you know back to reality
1: and you said that it was volatile and could blow up at any moment
0: yes well between sting and stewart not really me but um yeah there were some difficult moments in there you know I, i mean even at the beginning i thought this isn't gonna happen we're gonna not we're not gonna make it but we did you know because um you know, a setup like that, uh, you know, these massive stadiums we played in there. I mean, we had like 100, 120 people doing the shows with us, 75 trucks or something, you know, because of the construction of the uh, stage stuff, you know, and the lighting and all that. I mean, it was massive. Uh, But it was – I think they said ultimately it was the third highest grossing tour of all time.
1: Right. You wouldn't have been able to afford to walk away from that.
0: Well, that's what I'm saying. You know, (laughs) two weeks in, uh, too late. You can't back out of it now. All the contracts are signed. The insurance was in place. There's 120 people on the payroll. We were going. I mean, my guess is
1: somebody would have hung somebody from a balcony to to, to divorce.
0: It would not have been pretty. Yeah. (laughs) So – uh, there you go, uh, it was incredible, yeah we we, we couldn 't stop it, you know, and anyway, you know what it was fantastic, it was great fun to to do those shows all over the world to these massive audiences you know oh, christ we 're back, but anyway, that was what we did well
1: so two more two more questions i 'll let you go yeah. um i 've i 'd always wondered about um with miles and Stuart being brothers how yeah. You and Sting felt about trusting Miles that he wasn't just looking out for his brother's interests more than yours. I've never heard any evidence to that. I'm just curious um, what the, you know, what was it that you felt you trusted him to be in with the entire endeavor um, and what the dynamic between them was like, Miles and Stewart? Editor's note here Sting did go on to work with Miles Copeland in his solo career after the police, which I did know, but obviously it slipped my mind in the moment.
0: Um, well, I mean, you know, we don't work with Miles anymore. We haven't done three for years. And um, it, it just sort of happened naturally because, you know, when the three of us started together, you know, there was nothing. We were all like poverty-stricken, like hanging by a thread, barely. But uh, Miles was already working as, I don't know what he was. He was sort of a music manager slash agent kind of thing. And he had a place in London on uh, Oxford Street. And, um, you know, he, he was, I mean, Stuart Stewart was only 22 at the time, oh, 24, and Stuart being been in Curved Air, and we were all desperate, and the, the only possible point of contact with any gigs or music scene was Miles, in fact, who was a very taciturn, sort of grumpy person. And, um, you know, he wasn't really interested. It was sort of reverse nepotism. Right. Yeah, that's what it was. It didn't want to know you know, Stuart was coming out of the ultimate hippie band, Curved Air, and now being a punk. So it was all mm, dodgy, fake kind of thing. And Miles said, well, you're not really a punk. You know, Miles got completely, he got a sort of religious fervour about the punk scene, that everything had to be punk, you know, which was bullshit, of course. And But he did eventually turn up uh, at one of our early recording sessions out in, at the uh, Leatherhead's sorry studio and you know I mean I will give him his due he wasn't very interested, he would sit on the couch and tear bits of paper up in his, between his fingers and listen and not say anything it was a bit of a downer the only one moment when um, you know everything is supposed to be at a high speed and very elemental you know like sort of punk um, if you weren't punk you weren't going to work kind of thing and we had this song called Roxanne and we recorded it, and miles was, as I said, not a man of many words. We <laughs> played that, and he actually sat bolt upright on the couch and said, "This is great. I'm going to take this to a m tomorrow." and we were just we were sort of embarrassed to play him what we thought of was a ballad, and we probably shouldn't be doing it <laughs> and um, he went to A& m and they got it too, and that's really where it started, so we weren't actually looking for a manager. It was just the closest person you could touch who could maybe do anything at all, and it happened to be Miles, and we just sort of went on from there. I don't think we even signed a management contract until about three weeks after the band
1: broke up, in fact. It was crazy, yeah. That's interesting. Um, And you once compared him favorably, might I add, to Colonel Parker.
0: Well, he's a different kind of character. I mean, I'm not going to, I can't sit here and, you know, what's the wrong word, assault somebody's character. I'm not going to do that. But uh, he was a unique one-off kind of person who could make himself felt. Um, the point, the one problem with him is he was too distracted by too many other things that um, he shouldn't, he should have only focused on us, but he didn't. He, he sort of wanted all of it with a lot of other bands, and I think he missed out because of that, and he, we, he made us miss out a little bit. Although we were such a steamroller at the time, there's not much he could do about it. He couldn't control it, you know. But, you know, amazingly, he didn't come to Shea Stadium. Can you believe that? Busy That's with other I
1: things, think, it sounds like. Yeah. That's
0: mm-hmm. when I started to have my doubts. I thought, how could you miss this? You know, anyway, it's all history. Mm.
1: So uh, you're publicist for the book... Kim actually suggested, uh, I write anniversary pieces about classic records And the the 40th for Ghost of the Machine is coming up in October. That would be October of 2021. And I read everything that you said about that record in the book. Not your favorite, very difficult time for you, which is well documented again in the book. And just to clarify, the publicist I'm referring to is the publicist working the book fretted and moaning. But the second book I'm talking about is One Train Later. You weren't in favour of the layering of the synths on there which were mostly single though I had I'd been under the impression that you were at all contributed some keyboard parts um,
0: yeah it was getting a little bit uh, I think by Ghost the Machine I mean it came out well and went you know, sold millions, went straight to number one in the UK anyway um uh, um yeah, it was, I think we were slightly starting to come apart at the seams, but, you know, we were still so successful that no one could, you know, we just couldn't stop it. But I think that we got through that recording. It wasn't my favourite one. I think the next one, uh, what's it called? Synchronicity. Yeah, that came out better. Yeah, you know, to me, the, the great times of recording with the band were the first two albums, particularly the second album. That's the one where I thought, you know, we were on fire. We were really making it. We were playing every, practically every night of the week. You know, we were in huge demand, and we were completely into our thing. That was that's the one that I, for me is the best record.
1: Right. I mean, there's an arc with bands that succeed, particularly yeah. where the the all for one attitude has to dissolve or yeah. you know has to unravel just by definition of what success imposes on a group of people. Yeah.
0: It's a cage, you know, it is a cage. Um, you know, by the time you get, you know, it's usually most bands, the first albums are the best one because it's so fresh. And uh, ours was actually quite labour. We It took us a long time to make the first one, not because we just couldn't get into a studio. And we spent about six months updating it, you know, it was crazy. And the second one was made in like 10 days, I think. And probably the third one was... Yeah, made pretty quick. Three weeks, I think. You know, I mean, we didn't take much time because we were so used to playing all the time. You know, we had our thing. But um, yeah. By the time a band gets to so album number five, and if you've had a few hits, you're in that horrible position of having to repeat yourself. Can't you make it like the last one? You know, that was such a hit. You know, and of course, you don't want to do that creatively. You want to move on, but people don't always like you moving on because they know where the money is. <laughs> so. It's sort of a cage and a trap and a challenge, you know. I think we did pretty well with it because the fifth album, Synchronicity, was probably the one that sold the most ultimately and put so, us at number one in the US.
1: So which is your favorite, if there is, if you can even call it?
0: My favorite album is definitely the second one. Yeah, what's it called? Is that Regardless called of The of Yeah, yeah.
1: One could say that's where the sort of sonic identity of the band clicked or aligned or cohered.
0: That's right. I think that's true because we sort of made that first album sort of piecemeal, trying to like be a band and put it together. The second one, we'd have been doing millions of shows and we kind of had our signature, if you like, you know, we were able to apply it to the songs.
1: Right. And it's clear that by the second album you're you're the band is certain about where it stands with how much the punk thing is mixed in to what you do, versus trying to emulate. It's a subtle change, you know, because there are a lot of elements in place on the first album as well.
0: Well, there's many things to say about it, but yeah, we were moving out of like, oh, we've got a sound punk. That wasn't who we were, you know. It certainly wasn't my background and one Sting's either. But we were a rock band, you know, so we had to play it like rock, but it it wasn't like punk, you know, which it was
1: more raw, if you like. Right, it was sort of... Another element that was folded in. Yeah. The sound of the band had become its own thing by then. And so yeah, it, anything... it
0: did. It really did. I played, approached the guitar differently with the effects. Right. The way I played chords, the parts I would play behind the singer. And Sting was a melodic songwriter. So we had elements, natural elements that made us non-punk, but still a rock band. Yeah.
1: So I'll let you, you go Yeah. What's that?
0: No, I'd say it was a unique band. and never been there's never been another one like it i don't think i can't think of anybody that sounded like that or ever will actually which is why it continues on daily <laughs> it's got run, yeah
1: well i'll leave you with this what don't you miss about especially since you had another taste of it from 07 to 08 or, yeah. or whatever what don't you well, miss you about know, I mean,
0: yeah it's I, I, Well, I love love being on stage and playing and, you know, I I fulfill it in other ways. I mean, I've had a band in Brazil for a few years now that I do. It's it's ridiculously, the name of it is Call the Police. And I used to play with the bass player who's a great Brazilian singer and bass player, Um, but we did other music. And then eventually we just kind of got around to this. We got one of the premier rock drummers in South America to join up with us and we started doing... All police music shows, so I and we got big, big audiences. So, I in a weird way, I've sort of, uh, you know, scratched that itch, if you like. You know, I've managed to be on the big stages doing that kind of stuff on my own. You know, the last things I've been doing have been multimedia shows where I'm solo on stage and I play on it to like a cinema-sized screen of photography, different sequences I've worked out, and all this kind of stuff some reading, some talking, some solo guitar, you know, it's a whole other ball game. But, you know, I've done it about, I did it about 10 times and then the pandemic hit, which kind of knocked it out of the park, of course, waiting to get there.
1: Well, that aside, I mean, couldn't one look at your career and say from a certain perspective it's ideal because you've had the big, you know, you've done the Shea Stadium thing and yeah. the, and, and then the ginormously successful yeah. 20 plus years later reunion thing, but then you're also able to do something like a reading from yeah. your new book and no, uh, yeah. play a multitude I, of different projects without people breathing creatively down your neck and saying they want this, they want, you know, you've been able to put out lots of records, Yeah, do whatever you want, essentially. So I wonder if, if there aren't some advantages also to not still being.
0: Well, there are, yeah, because if you in a band like The Police, with that sort of success, it's all devouring. That's all there is outside of it you know I mean I did make a little bit of effort back in the day you know like I made those two records with Robert Fripp partly out of feeling somewhat stifled by being in the band and only doing that and you know I sort of had a little go at you know stretching my legs creatively by playing with someone else and Fripp in this case and you know but you know I'm not sitting around now going oh god I wish I was in that but no I'm not feeling that at all because I have many projects going, including this book that we've been talking about, so on and so forth. I play all the time. So uh, it is what it is, you know. I mean, if they decided, you know, just they, I'm not sure who they is, but them out there to, you know, to do another tour, I suppose we would do it. I don't see that coming, actually. So, no, I'm being fantastically lucky, but I've worked hard too, uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, some of those all-nighters or whatever they were called, overnighters, back, you know, in the '60s. Yeah, I'm surprised anyone survived that uh, kind. Yeah,
0: I am actually. Those were that was like working in the pit of the devil or something. Yeah, yeah. You do that when you're young, when you're 18, 19, 20. You know, you can do all that kind of stuff, which I did. You know, of course, loved it all. I was just totally living the life. You know, and then. You know, I took some time off. Then I came back. and I was in the police. I went all the way to where I thought I always should have been. Actually, yeah. So
1: I, I, I have no complaints. All right. Well, on that note, <laughs> I'm going to be using bits of this from in various different outlets. Lovely. So um,
0: Good. Let's get the word out. Thanks. I enjoyed talking to you.
1: My pleasure right. as well. All right, man. Okay. Take care. Take care. Yep. Bye. Bye. Ciao. fretted and moaning. Andy Summers' collection of short stories is available in Standard, Signature, and Ultimate Editions via Rocket 88 Books at us.rocket88books.com. Both the Signature and Ultimate Editions are signed by Summers, and both include a print of a photo taken by him just before the encore of a police show at the Nassau Coliseum in 1982. Again, that's us.rocket88books.com. Hey, guess what? I'm on Substack, and I would love for you to join me there. Go to feedbackdef.substack.com, where you can keep up for free with all of my reviews and features as they publish at the various outlets I write for, along with additional free-form commentary that I post exclusively on the platform. Again, signing up is free, and you get access to most of my content. And for about the same as a cup of coffee, you get access to special features that are detailed on the sign-up page. That's feedbackdef.substack.com. That'll do it. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, there's plenty more where that came from. I've got 20 years worth of interviews and I couldn't be more excited to share them with you. I'd love to have you subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're listening on and join me on Substack as well. I'm Sabi Reyes-Kulkarni. Until next time, over and out.